welcome to Disinformation Wars, a project of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'm AFPC Senior Vice President Elon Berman. Disinformation Wars is a series of conversations with officials, experts, and practitioners designed to take you behind the scenes of the struggle for hearts and minds of global publics that's now taking place around the world. It's a contest being waged by Russia, China, Iran, and other actors, and the stakes could not be any higher. Welcome back to Disinformation Wars, everyone. It's been quite a while. And for that, I need to apologize. Over the last few weeks, I've been absolutely slammed with work-related travel, as well as with putting the finishing touches on a large year-long project dealing with Russian disinformation and Western responses to it. You'll be hearing a lot more about that this fall once the study is finally released. But until then, I hope you can bear with me as I try to clear the decks. On that note, I wanted to circle back to the topic of Chinese disinformation. In our last installment, way back in June, I spoke with Jimmy Quinn of National Review, who gave us an excellent overview of TikTok, the massively popular Chinese social media app, what it does, why policymakers in Washington are worried, and what the United States is prepared to actually do about it. TikTok, though, is just part of a much larger story about how China is seeking to influence global politics. And when officials in Beijing talk about this soft power push, they use an interesting term, discourse power. So what is discourse power exactly? A December 2020 report from the Atlantic Council defined it this way. Discourse power is the concept that a country can attain increased geopolitical power by setting agendas internationally through influencing the political order and values both domestically and in foreign countries. That's an ambitious mission for sure. And it raises a few pressing questions like, what are the different tools that make up China's effort to win hearts and minds? And more importantly, do we truly understand what the PRC is trying to say? To get some answers, I turn to Tuvia Garrett. Tuvia is a researcher at the Institute for National Security Studies, Israel's premier foreign policy think tank. He's also a non-resident fellow at the Atlanta Council's Global China Hub. Tuvia is truly one of the rising young stars of China analysis, and his Substack column, entitled, you guessed it, Discourse Power, is essential reading for everyone that's interested in how Chinese narratives and messages are beginning to reshape the global order. If you're not a subscriber, you definitely should be. Tuvia, a real pleasure to chat. Thank you, Elon. Great to be here. Okay, let's start at the 60,000-foot level. Tell us a bit about how Beijing thinks about discourse power. What goes into this concept, and what is Beijing trying to achieve through it? All right, so in a nutshell, discourse power is a story about people who tell stories, and also those who listen to the stories. The China story is a story about humiliation to rejuvenation. But uh, first, the Chinese concept uh, in Chinese discourse power is It has two meanings, two definitions. One is legal, it means right, as in I have a right to vote, a right to life, a right to speak. But it also has another meaning. It's written differently, it means power is like in a geopolitical meaning or just power in an abstract sense, as in the power of discourse. So taking together these two meanings is explained beautifully by my Atlantic Council colleague, Kenton Thibault, in a series of three essays she wrote about discourse power specifically. Chinese scholars describe it as the power to speak and the power to be heard. So this is a narrative agenda-setting ability focused on reshaping global governance, values, norms, and legitimize and facilitate the expression of state power. And this, of course, draws from a long history and traditional Chinese statecraft, 
to use language as an arm of state power. Of course, this is a cross-cultural phenomenon, not just exclusive to China. And more recently, this concept of discourse power comes from Michel Foucault in 1970. And in this postmodernist sense, they understand that language is not just a vehicle for communication, but also it embodies the structures of power. Later on, after 2000, after the Cold War, of course, the idea of soft power was popularized by Joseph Nye, the political scientist, and it caught on in China, especially during the Beijing Olympics in 2008, when there was growing global scrutiny over China and the human rights violation it has, for example, in Tibet. And it made Xi Jinping's predecessor, Hu Jintao, think that this is time to tell the official version of the China story. He wanted to gain the right to speak and control public opinion globally. And that's when they started this big propaganda push. You know, they paid billions of dollars. When Xi Jinping came to power, he made himself the storyteller in chief of China. When he just started, he took all of the top officials of the party to Road of Rejuvenation exhibition in Beijing National Museum. And again, this is the story of China, the story from humiliation of 100 years under foreign power, Western powers in Japanese, to creating a new China that is rejuvenated, strong, socialist, and modern. So the year later, and that's when the official discourse powers term you know, came into the agenda, Xi Jinping was speaking to a national propaganda and ideology war conference in 2013. And that's when he introduced the idea of struggle over public opinion, something with Maoist roots, of course, and also the idea of discourse power. Since then, it just boomed. It became a buzzword and you see it everywhere. What Beijing is trying to achieve, as we said, domestically, it's trying to rejuvenate the nation. It seeks to create a spiritual foundation for the country. And of course, this foundation with the CCP and Xi Jinping at the helm, needless to say. And internationally, it's restructuring the global order. As Kenton described, it's trying to reshape the agendas, the rules, standards, values, perceptions, and behaviors, and create a favorable external environment for China to operate, and also eroding the West's discourse hegemony and discourse dominance, and we can talk about this later, thereby creating a post-Western and post-hegemonic world order. Well, that's fabulous overview, I think. And it begs the question, what messages is China sending these days? What's it trying to say, particularly to audiences in what we call the global south, the developing world, where US and European influence tends to be far less pervasive than we here in Washington and in places like Tel Aviv and Jerusalem think? Yeah. So... Communication scholars, when they look at Chinese messaging, they use a term called framing, right? These are just the main messages that appear in different packages, right? But the frame remains the same. And I'll give examples just to people understand better. Some of the common frames that China uses is that China is a peaceful country, naturally, but it is dangerous if you challenge it. So, for example, you often see messages like, I'll actually translate this week. War is not in the genes of Chinese people. China hasn't fought a war in 40 years. China has a peaceful rise, and it doesn't engage in block confrontation, avoiding the Thucydides trap, peaceful unification. Another message that they use is the success or superiority, and this is the word they use, superiority of the Chinese model that is better than the other model. 
the American model. And here you have the Belt and Road Initiative, the Silk Road since ancient times until today, creating a community of shared destiny for mankind. Even traditional Chinese medicine is part of the China model. Other frames that they use is blaming the other, mainly the West and the US for their Cold War mentality and anti-China racism and China threat theory and debt trap diplomacy. And two more messages that are very salient is cooperation, where China talks about win-win and friendship and coexistence and harmony. And of course, you need to support. They always say there's no strings attached, right? But they actually do have some strings attached, and that's anything attached to China's bottom line, DCN, or core interest, namely Taiwan, Xinjiang, Tibet, Hong Kong, South China Sea, and so on. The combination of all these frames, messages put together is a Pavlovian conditioning in which cooperation is rewarded greatly, opposition to China is futile, any action against it is an act of suicide. Your other question, I think it pointed rightly to the global south. And here, if we put again this communication hat. So in Kenton's report, she wrote the two first reports about these two domains that China identified as the best targets for its messages. Because, you know, they, they kind of gave up on the global north. It's a tough crowd. But in the global south, in the digital domain, in these geographic region, this is where they can stick. Kenton quotes a Chinese scholar called He Jianhua. He's the, he used to be the vice president of the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences. He wrote a very common meme that others use as well, that we need to overcome the idea of the West is strong while China is weak. Xi Jiang wo ruo. So China needs to find the right entry points, unquote, for its narratives. And there it has to focus their efforts. And he gives an example of the idea of development. Remember, if you cooperate with China, if you ride on this train to the future, then your development is assured and security, it's beautiful, it's great. And you know what? To us, maybe sitting in Jerusalem or in D.C., it's not so appealing. But when you're in the developing world, in the global south, you need to give China credit because its success story, its development Chinese model has been successful for 40 years of almost double-digit growth. It can assure security and development at the same time, relatively, stability, especially political. And for elites listening to these messages, they understand that modernization is not necessarily westernization. You can still be authoritarian and develop. What a great thing. China wants us to understand that it first needs to destroy and then rebuild a new, a brave new world. And that is because of this Western hegemony, because of Western discourse power. They need to break this first and then rebuild. So Domestically, they will create this rejuvenated Chinese dream that by 2049, 100th anniversary of the establishment of the PRC, China will have established a modern socialist country, as I said before. And internationally, they will create a post-Western world of a community of shared destiny for mankind. Right. And I referenced Tel Aviv and Jerusalem in my last question because you're based in Israel. And... China's soft power can be felt there as well. So I'm curious, can you talk a little bit about how Beijing is trying to shape the way Israelis talk and think about China itself? Yeah, I think here we need to take a step back first to understand that the way China seeks to influence Israel is not always tailored just to Israel. There are many tried and successful methods that has been using for literally a century 
since its establishment in 1921, influence, foreign influence is, you know, it's the bread and butter of China. According to Mao Zedong, and now Xi Jinping quotes this as well, influence is part of the magic weapons that China has that secured its success, its victory in the Second World War, and also against the Japanese, for example, by creating what they call a united front with the opposing Chinese party, the Kuomintang. Thereafter, when the Civil War started, they were able to use the same magic weapon, the same united front tactics, until they expelled the KMT to Taiwan. And now they use this tactic again to reunify, as they describe it, with the island, the democratic island. And in its root, what it means, it's a Leninist doctrine that tries to maintain the party's monopoly over control of China and promoting its interest by separating, isolating its opponents, and cultivating anyone who's outside of the party that seeks to support the party and its interest. So all this preamble is trying to say that many of the things I will describe now are tried and tested methods that China uses globally. And here's some example if we look at like different dimensions. Take the political one, or just the national level. China tries to co-opt political elite, business elite, religious scholars, media elites. If you probably heard about Gal Luf, the Israeli businessman who's now on the run from the FBI, if you're not familiar with the name, so Google it and enjoy the roller coaster. So this guy, he's connected with a Chinese magnet tycoon called Ye Jianmin from a company that doesn't exist anymore, CFC of Energy. And for some reason, Ye Jiangmin, who has absolutely no connection to Israel, decides to donate a million dollars to the Kerem Kemetli Israel, to the National Fund for Developing Israel. And then he connects with Galuft and then some infrastructure investment. And there you see this kind of mishmash of politics and power. So it's pretty interesting. Google Galuft and, and check the story. Another thing is the United Front usually works with Chinese minorities or Chinese indigenous communities in countries. So in Australia, in Canada, in the U.S., where you have big Chinese communities, it works pretty well. But in Israel, there aren't many local Chinese, just probably a couple of hundreds, maybe no more than a thousand. But you always have the more uh, simpatico business community. And you have some think tanks and lobbying groups that uh, the Chinese pay for and so on. Another method that they use is circumventing state authority by working with local authorities, that is municipalities here. Another example that is common and probably familiar to most of the listeners is through education. They have Confucius Institutes in Israel, in Tel Aviv, and Hebrew University, my alma maters. They have the biggest East Asian programs, the most important East Asian programs in Israel, so it's pretty notable. And there's also some uh, self-censorship too, Again, not uh, special in Israel. The problem is prevalent for all China scholars now. When you, have, when you go to China, you have to be careful because they're limiting access to archives, limiting access to field research. And there's a famous case study of one professor here in Israel that was barred from China for 15 years because he wrote a paper about uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Through the embassy, of course, they do a lot of information operation or just legitimate diplomacy, of course. Many of these influence attempts are very legitimate. The media, too, and I think this is the last example because it's a pretty successful one, where they have a Chinese state media, the Chinese Radio International, under the China Media Group. They have Hebrew speakers that speak fluent Hebrew, very charismatic, very popular here. They became local celebrities. 
and they were able to tailor their messages to Israeli crowd. Okay, so let me ask you, is all of this working? Because we know that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is headed to China this fall for a state visit, and there's a lot of speculation that surrounds the trip. Some people, mm -hmm. certainly some people here in Washington, are chalking it up to being mostly a signal to the Biden administration, with which Bibi doesn't see eye to eye. And they're portraying it as a not so subtle message by the Israeli prime minister that he has options other than Washington. And of course, Bibi recently met with China's ambassador to Israel. And that meeting sparked a firestorm of controversy after Bibi was photographed leafing through a copy of Chinese President Xi Jinping's writings on political philosophy and society. So what precisely are we seeing? What's the sort of the center of gravity? All right. So for your first question, has it worked? Incidentally, last week, Pew released their annual survey, where Israel is also surveyed, and they, there they asked about favorability ratings of China in the world. And you see that uh, China's attempts, they have failed successfully, as they say. Israel is still, it's the most favorable toward China among the developing world, but it used to be really high up there with only 25% of the population having negative views of China. And that was, I think, last time in 20. 19, if I recall, but the idea is in the last decade, China, you know, last favor here in Israel, COVID probably helped a lot, but and other things too, the trade war, the US and the geopolitics. But right now, from 25% negative ratings, it's now up to 50% negatives and only 48% positive. So again, positive is more than other developing countries, but China did something pretty wrong here. You can't just blame everything on U.S. pressure. I mean, as much as you like a Chinese audience listening now, you need to look at the mirror sometimes. Anyway, so your second question about Netanyahu, right? So I think first thing, the idea of options and or alternatives that Israel has, I think the word alternative in the U.S. should not come in the same sentence in the Hebrew language because there is no alternative Israel made its decision a long time ago, over 20 years ago, if you recall, there are two incidents of Israel trying to export defense technology to China. And since then, the U.S. pulled the brake and Israel stopped. And since then, it was obvious, if you want, we can go as far as back as President of Truman in the Cold War. But the idea is that we need to put things in context. On the Israeli side, we are undergoing some pretty massive judicial reforms that the most right-wing coalition is trying to form. And the optics is really bad. With Netanyahu, the prime minister, holds President Xi's book, The Governance of China. And remember that he hasn't been invited to the White House. In the meantime, you know, the leaders of India and Italy, they're still invited. And it seems a bit vindictive on the Biden administration side. But that's beside the point. It does create this feeling that here Israel is kind of like Saudi Arabia, where it goes to China when it doesn't receive attention from the U.S. But remember, there is no alternative to the U.S. for Israel. And we are very clear-eyed about it. I think by we, it's like the capital we, government and the Israeli people. We share values and history. Until today, the U.S. gave Israel $170 billion in aid, in military aid advanced weapon system, its intelligence, its integration regionally is part of CENTCOM now and the Abraham Accords, its investment that far outstrip anything that China has. Half of the Jewish nation, half the Jewish people, they live in the U.S. So it's this connection, too, is also very deep. 
Ah, and of course, the last thing I forgot is the most important is the veto power in the UN Security Council, where the US uh, supports us and without its support will be sanctioned, kind of like uh, North Korea. China, on the other hand, on this part, always votes against Israel dogmatically. It even initiates motions against Israel. It doesn't care about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It supports Iran, both uh, diplomatically and economically and somewhat technologically. It launders money of the IRGC, of Hamas, of Islamic Jihad, and there's no shared language Literally, even the Chinese ambassador, Tsai Rune, he doesn't even speak English. He needs to work through, you know, someone, a translator. So the expectation Israel has from China are, you know, matching. Nevertheless, it's still necessary for Netanyahu to visit China. China is an important country. He hasn't visited China since 2017. It's our second largest trade partner. It's a small investor, less than 10%, but still important. And in March, when it brokered the time between Iran and Saudi Arabia, it showed us that it is also important regionally. So to sum up, China is important. The U.S. is more important. It's unbreakable bond, the way Israel sees it. And China can do a lot of damage as a friend. So we have no interest making it an enemy. Well, there's a lot to pick apart there, and we're going to have to save that for another time. But it does beg a larger question that I had, which is how Chinese discourse power in the global South generally, not just towards Israel, but towards the global South writ large, how it links up with other things and other initiatives that Beijing is pushing, like the global security initiative that was launched by Xi Jinping last year. You've written a paper about this. I'm sort of curious as to how the discourse power component nest together with the other priorities that the PRC has. Yeah, so discourse power and the global initiatives are all enmeshed or part and parcel of, you know, dialectics of the same thing. China has several global initiatives right now. We're all familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative that now celebrates its decade since its launch. And it just crossed uh, this week, very important watermark by being involved in over a trillion dollars of investments or just deals or infrastructure. And many people are familiar with the Belt and Road Initiative through an infrastructure investments and that kind of stuff. But it's important to remember that the way China sees it is a tool for connectivity, both hard connectivity, the infrastructure, but also soft connectivity as well. And also infrastructure is not just all the ports and bridges and roads that China builds. It's also digital infrastructure. They have something they call the digital Silk Road. And this is a Kenton's second report where she talks about the digital Silk Road and discourse power. China tries through the Belt and Road Initiative, through the digital Silk Road to install infrastructure and, uh, for example, 5G infrastructure here in the region, 12 countries have a Huawei 5G infrastructure, and also setting the standards of international communication and internet protocols, and having internet mobile carriers provide service for free, as they do in some developing countries. This is just the Belt and Road Initiative. In addition to that, over the last two years, Xi Jinping unveiled three more global initiatives that are global by definition. They are the Global Development Initiative, GDI, the Global Security Initiative you mentioned is the GSI, and then you have the last one unveiled five months ago, I think now, the Global Civilization Initiative. 
Okay, so what do they mean and how they relate to discourse power? The GDI, the development one, is pretty obvious. There's a lot of similarities to the Belt and Road Initiative, but officially their goal is to expedite the UN's sustainable development goals of 2030. In essence, it aims to, to set the agenda of global development by co-opting this high consensus concept. As one Chinese ambassador says, who would say no to development? And China was able, through UN frameworks, create an inclusive but actually exclusive and US-free, China-led group of friends of the GDI that sits now in New York with 70 countries part of it. They have been endorsed by the General Secretary and also... You know, after 2030, when we will have reached the sustainable development goals, you're going to have all these different functions, different platforms, different deliverables, as China described, that try to control and monopolize the discussions about development worldwide. The GSI on security is more straightforward. Here, they try to promote a new security concept. And new means by, you know, it implies there's an old security concept, and that is the Western security concept. And here, they talk a lot about upholding the UN Charter and principles and saying that some countries advocate for zero-sum game, inciting camp confrontation, Cold War mentality. But, you know, look at the GSI and look at how they try to promote their 12-point plan for Ukraine. You remember that? After they brokered the normalization between Iran and Saudi Arabia in March. So they kind of went on that wave. I don't know any Ukrainian that has benefited from the GSI until today, two and a half years after the most you know, flagrant violation of UN Charter has been committed by Xi Jinping's best and most intimate friend, unquote. So they have a GSI concept paper where they talk about this new security architecture. They even detail new security architecture for the Middle East. And they try to do all these international conferences on security for the region. And they do similar things in other regions of the world as well. Finally, I think is the Global Civilization Initiative. This is the most pernicious one for people sitting in the West because this directly confronts universal values. Here, when Xi Jinping unveiled it back in April, he said the Chinese development model proves once and for all that modernization does not equal to westernization. This breaks the myth. And he tries to portray the GCI, the Global Civilization Initiative, as China being the civilization nation that it is, unlike other countries that are, you know, don't have 5,000 years of history. They're only like 270 years old and they're not even a civilization. They have basically don't even have culture. So they promote a clash of civilization, right? They use this Huntington uh, kind of scarecrow as a foil. And China wants to let all the flowers of the big garden of world civilization bloom. The Global Civilization Initiative says that instead of universal values, we're going to have now something called shared values of mankind, shared values of humanity. This is using cultural essentialism, saying that to each country, they have their own culture, they have their own thing. So values are not universal. Democracy, human rights, they're all subjected to the sovereignty of the state because they are the ones to decide. By subjugating them, this is China basically trying to deflect the criticism that it receives over its own violations of universal human rights. Just remember some history. China's predecessor, the Republic of China, took part in writing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. But right now, they're trying to undermine it by this GCI. So 
There you're going to see a lot of initiatives on soft power and in the Middle East. We already started seeing some interesting developments. For example, they're going to invite 200 political leaders each year from Arab countries to China, and they're going to have sport events and culture and international reports and anything you almost can imagine, even talk about cybersecurity through the GCI for some reason. They have this big packages, many deliverables, many things, of course, they had been doing already, but now it's under a new package. And taken together, these are the tools, the BRI, the GDI, GSI, GCI, to create this community of shared destiny for mankind, this utopian vision that for us is looking a lot less utopian, to say the least. Okay, let's bring this home with what is probably the most important question of all. Is this persuasive? You laid out the different overlapping initiatives that China is using and has put into play in order to try to reshape the global order in its favor, and also the discourse power, the narratives that undergird it, that essentially through which China is trying to sell these plans. Are the audiences buying what China is selling? Is what China is saying persuasive to different audiences around the world? And why or why not? So first you need to ask who's the audience, right? Who are we trying to persuade? And look at the Pew survey, for example, from last week. They looked at 24 countries and the results were pretty overwhelming. In all of the developing countries, Israel included, but also in some uh, global South countries, namely uh, Brazil and India, China's popularity has decreased substantially over the last year. And then you had many analysts take this report and say on Twitter, on, on the news, that China has failed, right? They need to do a about face. But you need to remember these 24 countries, as defenders of China have been saying, rightfully so, these do not represent all the world. There are other countries as well, many in the global south. And there, China's been much more successful. So you put uh, Brazil and India aside. With India, they have a border clash, a bloody one at that. But for the rest of the global south, if you look at other surveys, for example, by the Arab barometer from Princeton and the Afro barometer, you see that China has become more favorable than the U.S. in many of the countries, in, I think in even most of the countries. But ask again, who is the audience? Even if China gets a low score, some people matter more than others in Chinese eyes. And here, I mean the elite, the same elite that the United Fronts tried to co-opt. If you look at the question of Taiwan, for example, right? And how many countries say that Taiwan is a democratic and prosperous country? If I say this right now as an Israeli official, I'm not, I'm just representing myself here, then this is what will create a diplomatic crisis. And the same applies for almost the whole world. So on that sense, the Taiwan question on the Chinese narrative is really successful. The one China principle, that's it. Another thing is on Xinjiang. Maybe it's the West and it got the US or, or the Netherlands or Canada. They got 40, 50, 60 countries to sign letters criticizing the human rights condition in Xinjiang and also the UN Human Rights Committee. But still, the entire Muslim world, they have been saying how great the human rights condition in Xinjiang. When Palestinian President Abbas just visited China, the first thing in the strategic agreement, the strategic cooperation between Palestine and China is saying that Xinjiang is not a human rights issue. It's an issue of fighting extremism and terrorism and separatism. 
So Xinjiang is also pretty successful when it comes to the elite. When you ask the people on the ground, it's either they don't know, they don't care, or they're misinformed, or they actually support China. And you need to remember, China is successful in many things that it does. In the Belt and Road Initiative, it has benefited many countries. So that's one thing. Another thing to remember is that international relations is not a popularity contest. You know, if it were, then Israel wouldn't exist. China, even when it doesn't have allies like the U.S., it's still the biggest trade partner of most countries of the world. And for now, that's good enough for China because this means it's too big to fail. For Xi Jinping, who wants China to be credible, lovable, and respectable, his words, he thinks that, you know, if that fails and other countries refuse to see China for what it is, for how great it is, and the man-made miracle he created for the world, then they would love him through fear for now. And I think that's part of the problem. That's why it not necessarily succeeded, because like all utopian Marxist ideas, they tend to crash against the cliffs of reality. For the Belt and Road Initiative, there's the idea of debt trap. That has been debunked thoroughly by economy, okay? But there's a whole host of actual problems associated with the Belt and Road Initiative, like corruption, lack of transparency. And for China being the largest state creditor, it is a small creditor, it's less than 10%, but still it's a larger state creditor. It gives it a lot of leverage over these developing countries. And then it makes it a lot harder for them to restructure the debt. So that's one thing. For security, we talked about Ukraine and how much the GSI helped Ukraine. And the GCI, you know, you talk about uh, the Global Civilization Initiative and having each country has its own understanding of human rights and shared values of mankind. So let me ask you, what do you think if you go right now to ask your women in Afghanistan how much the GCI and China's vision has helped them? Or your specialty on Iran, right? The people of Iran that the regime uses Chinese technology like TND and Hikvision, you know, AI and cameras and all these systems to repress their captive population. How much has the GCI helped them? How much agency do they have through this GCI? So to summarize, the problem with these scientific, quote unquote, deterministic utopias is, again, they don't always work. And when they don't work, it creates enemies for the regime that promotes them. And here it's domestically, it's the Chinese people that suffer through Xinjiang, through Hong Kong, civil liberties that destroyed the one child policy. It's the endless and costly COVID lockdowns and it's the crackdown on private tech and censorship and I can go on. And internationally, when this utopia of a community of shared future or shared destiny doesn't work, then you'll see China that is more forceful, China that is more belligerent to its neighbors, to the West. And lo and behold, as expected, Xi Jinping's policies over the last decade have backfired. They turned China into this national security state that is imbued with hyper-nationalist spirit of struggle, the way they describe it, the Dojang Jinshan. And it produces this vicious cycle when an increased threat perception from China, some of it is real to their credit, but still, this threat perception that is inflated, it created this overreaching foreign policy where it worsened its relations with the West and its neighbors. There's no other way to define its relationship with the West when your entire ethos for a country is humiliation to rejuvenation. You need to have a bad guy. And the bad guy is the West. Bad guy is the U.S. 
The same reason I think that in the American narrative, the bad guy could be China, because it's a very potent thing to have a villain for your national story. Really thought-provoking stuff, Tuvia. Thank you so much. We'll have to leave it there, but to be continued, thank you for sharing your insights. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Disinformation Wars. To learn more about the American Foreign Policy Council and our work on public diplomacy, visit us online at www.afpc.org. And as always, we hope you'll join us again next time.